Hey, I'm Gabriel Goldfeder. I'm a Jewish life consultant, a.k.a. rabbi. We pick up the action inside the city of Jerusalem under siege. The first thing that the Talmud tells us about what's happening inside the walls of Jerusalem is that Havuba Hinohu Tlata Atire? There were these three wealthy men, and these are their names: Nachdimon ben Gurion, so Nachdimon the son of Gurion, Uben Kalva Savua, literally as we'll see, the son of a satisfied dog, Uben Tzitzit Hakeset, and also a man whose name seems to mean the one or the child of. Tzitzit, ritual fringes on the cushions. Okay, the Gemara then tells us the meanings of their names. Nakdimon ben Gurion, Shanakdalo Hamabavuro, that the sun shone for him. Ben Kalva Savua, the second one. Shakol Hanichnas, Lebeitokashahu Raev Kakelev, that anyone who went into his home hungry like a dog, Yotsekashahu Savea came out satisfied. Ben Tzitzit HaKeset, the one whose fringes are on the cushions, Shaita Tzitzito Nigereret Al-Gabe Ksatot, that his fringes were dragged along the cushions. It seems to imply a, a, a kind of wealth or luxury. And there are those who say, Ika Amri Shaita Kiseto Mutalet Bengidoli Romi, that his cushion where he sat was among the great people of Rome. And these rich people, says the Talmud, Chad Amar Lahu Anu Ana Zaina Lahu One said, I will feed them with wheat and barley. And one said to them, that he would provide wine and salt and oil. And one said to them, I will provide firewood. The rabbis of the Talmud take a detour for a moment to tell us, the rabbis praised the gift or the offering of firewood more than the others. Rav Chista used to hand over all the keys to his wares to his storehouses except the one for firewood to his servant he would give the servant all the other keys the amr of chista because of chista said to cook one measure of wheat requires 60 measures of wood okay good to know and then the gemara tells us just to finish this section these wealthy men had enough to provide for the needs of the city for 21 years. It's important that we know that the citizens of Jerusalem are, for the moment, safe. They have enough to survive. Though there is pressure from the outside, there is also enough time and enough space for them 
to settle their minds, to get their wits about them, to think and to consider and to even debate perhaps what it is that they are to do in this situation. 21 years is a long time. It may even be enough time to outweigh someone who is laying siege to the city. But the Maharal points out that the number 21 has a deeper significance. He writes in his book, Netzach Yisrael, chapter 5, that these 21 years correspond to the 21 days between the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av, the three weeks, the time period in which we find ourselves right now. These three weeks correspond to two major tragedies in the history of the Jewish people. The golden cow incident, as well as the incident of the spies. The story of the spies has many elements that are in common with and that influence the destruction of the temple. In one telling, when the spies return and the people of Israel in the wilderness at that time hear the report of the spies and hear the fear and the fearsomeness of the people, of the giants and of the cities that they will face when they make it into the land of Israel, into Canaan, and they panic and they decide that they ought to turn around and return to Egypt. That night, says our tradition, is the ninth of Av. It is a night of tragedy that began, in a sense, with the Jewish people accepting the report of the spies and continues throughout history to be a very painful day. So the spies spent 40 days in Israel, and their punishment, therefore, was to spend 40 years in the wilderness. As the Torah says, Yom Lashana, Yom Lashana, for each day that the spies were in the land of Israel, misinterpreting the reality that they were perceiving, the Jewish people would have to spend one year wandering in the wilderness. Yom Lashana, Yom Lashana. So here, interestingly enough, with the Jewish people trapped in the city of Yerushalayim, they have 21 years of food. Says the Maharal, in these 21 years, they will have the capacity to fix the 21 days of the three weeks. They will have a capacity to do the work that needs to be done in order to return and to restore connection to God, to acknowledge the pain that we have caused, to acknowledge the system we have built that perpetuates exile and distance, and to do tshuva on that, and to turn it over, and to make these three weeks into a time of connection and a time of growth.
they have that opportunity. They have 21 years in order to do that work. This is promising. This implies that the temple doesn't have to be destroyed at that time. Vespasian, as strong as he is, it is not fait accompli that he is going to succeed. It is quite possible that the Jewish people could do the work, could look at themselves, could do the kind of personal and communal introspection that would be needed in order to turn this story around. It's important to know that that opportunity is there. It's important to know that the Gzerah, the decree, has not yet been signed. There is still an opportunity to look. I often carry this feeling with me as we enter into the three weeks and the nine days and the week of Tisha B'Av and the day before Tisha B'Av and the night of Tisha B'Av. That I act, and I assume many people do, that this is fait accompli. This year on Tisha B'Av, we will fast, just as we have for the last couple thousand years. But maybe there's a possibility that we could do tikkun. Maybe there's a possibility that we could get it together, that we could do the kinds of personal and communal introspection and tshuva that would be required in order to turn this day into a day of celebration and a day of connection and building and movement rather than a day of weeping to commemorate destruction. So the possibility of teshuva is in place. These wealthy individuals have agreed to provide food enough to sustain the people inside Yerushalayim for 21 years to do teshuva. The problem is that they are not the only people in Yerushalayim trying to determine the state of affairs. As the Talmud tells us, There were in the city these thugs. Jastro translates as rebels, outlaws, or highwaymen. Amru Luhu Rabbanan, the rabbis, said to these thugs, these highwaymen, Nipok v'na'avid shlama bahadayu, let us go out and make peace with them. Lo shavakunu, they didn't allow them to go. Amru Luhu Nipok v'na'avid karva bahadayu, these baryonis said, let us go out and make battle with them. Amrulhu Rabbanan Lomistaya Milta. It will not help. What is going on with these conversations? We seem to perpetually end up in a situation where someone has an idea and someone else shoots it down. And then it ends. And then someone else has an idea and someone else shoots it down. And it ends. And it seems to always happen with the rabbis around. And why are the rabbis thinking about making peace with the Romans anyway? Didn't you just get through telling us that these wealthy men had bought 21 years for the Jewish people inside Yerushalayim to do tshuva? Maybe the rabbis could lead tshuva. That's a good idea. Maybe the rabbis could guide the people, could understand what's happening, 
could get their finger on the pulse of the community, could use their special rabbi powers to figure out what's wrong and do what they can to lead the people in a process of introspection and conversation and work so that they don't have to be destroyed and they don't have to make peace with this people. Instead, the rabbis want to make peace. Okay, fine. The thugs, acting like the rabbis, say no. And then the thugs want to make war. Why do they go to the rabbis to talk about making war? Are they looking for a blessing? Why are the rabbis so sure it's not going to work? Maybe this is a Hanukkah story. Maybe the few righteous indignation guiding them will go out and defeat the conquering people in the name of truth and justice. Or maybe the rabbis know it's not going to help because this people is broken. They don't have the zeal that the Maccabees had when they fought against the Greeks. They don't have the passion, the intensity, the fervor. And how do they know that? Well, they're the rabbis. And they don't have the passion and intensity and fervor. So they know that any attempt at battle is ill-fated. So the Baryonis have an idea. They are going to get people motivated. If the rabbis can't get people motivated for the passion of doing what's right, the passion of Torah, the intensity of commitment to God's rule, then maybe a famine will get them motivated. So these Baryonis, what do they decide to do? They got up and burned the storehouses of wheat and barley. And there was a famine. Ostensibly, the famine is to motivate people to fight, to give them that sense of panic and urgency that will motivate them to fight. But it doesn't work. Instead, people suffer. And the Talmud gives us an example, a very curious example of this suffering. Marta bat Baitus. Marta, the daughter of Baitus, a Tirta, who was wealthy, the Yerushalayim, a wealthy person of Yerushalayim, Havia Shadarta Leshlucha. She sent out her attendant for Amale. She said to him, Zil Aitili Samida. Go bring me some level A bread. Whatever the detail is. Maybe it's white bread. Ada Azal Izdivan. While he was out to get it, it was sold out. Ata Amarla, he came and said to her, Samida Leka, there's no level A bread. Chivrataika, but there's level B bread. Amale, Zil Aituli. Go and bring me this level 2 bread. Ada Azal Izdivan, while he was on the way, it sold out. Ata Amarla, he came and said to her, Chivra Leka, there's no level two bread. Gushkara Ika, there is level three bread. Amale, she said to him, Zil Aitili, go bring me. Ada Azal Izdivan, as he was on the way out, it sold out. Ata Amarla, he came and said to her, Gushkara Leka, there's no level three bread. Kimcha Dashare Ika. There is, however, level four bread, which I think is barley bread. 
Amalei, she said to him, Zeal it, go and bring it to me. Ada Azel, as he went out, Izdivan, it was sold out. Hava Shalifa Misana. She had just taken off her shoes. Amra, she said, Ipok midi I'll go out and see if I can find something to eat. Itivala Parata Bikara. She went out and stepped on some dung and it stuck to her foot. Umeta. And she died. Kari Allah Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai said about her, he quoted the verse from Devarim, Harachabach lecha vanuga ashalona stakaf lagla, the most pampered and spoiled from among you, whose foot never touched the ground. Meaning that terrifying verse in that terrifying section in the book of Devarim that tells about the possible consequences of violating the covenant with God, one of which is that the most pampered person will die of hunger. Here we see that that has, in fact, come to fruition. What's shocking, though, is that it didn't come about, apparently, by some divine decree. This is a function of people making decisions in a void, creating a reality in which this happens, and it feels tragically unnecessary. Why didn't she ever notice that we are in a terrible situation? Why did she think that things are just one step worse than I thought? Granted, I can't get level A bread, but I can get level B bread. Okay, I can't get level B bread, I'll get level C bread. Why doesn't she know that we're in a terrible, free-fall, famine, panic situation? And again, I have to wonder... Why is no one stepping up and clarifying this? Why is no one sounding the alarm and telling everyone, people, this is a really bad situation. This isn't just that you can't get the bread that you want. This is terrible. This is going to end terribly. We need to do something real right now. That could have been the rabbis reminding people they have to do tshuva. It could have been these boryanis, these thugs, someone Step up, tell us what's happening here, give us a sense of direction, read the writing on the wall, but no one's reading it. I mention this because I think this is one of the most relevant details to the modern current conversation about how we are doing as a people. What level of panic, if any, should we be at? If we look around at many of the ills that beset the Jewish people in this moment. And I have my own standards, my own bar for what I look for as indication or as a symptom of how we are doing as a people. And everyone will have their own standard for how they look at the big picture of what's happening with the Jewish people and how they're doing. But one thing I want to make sure that we don't do is to assume that everything's okay 
accept this one thing if it's really not okay for all the things. We can't be blinded by an assumption that, yeah, I can't get level A bread in my shul or in my community or at my Passover Seder or when I pray or when I look at the way Israel is being related to in the modern world. But I can get level B and it's really fine and it's really not as bad as it seems and I'll just go out and get me some level B bread and everything will be fine. It would be better if we could realize from the outset, I know I can't get level A bread and I can't get level D bread either. There's no bread to be had here. This is a bad situation. The bottom is low for what we're dealing with right now. And we need to be realistic about that. The way that this woman, Marta, that she treats her next meal without saying, just get me something. Get me something to eat. I don't care. Get me the best bread you can get right now. The fact that she thinks we're, we're experiencing a slight speed bump or a, a glitch and really everything is actually fine and it happens to be that I can't get white bread right now. The, her willful blindness, I would say, around this is disturbing and something that should speak to us as well as we do our own assessments of our private, communal, public, and national Jewish lives. Like, how's it going, really? If you were to say, for example, yeah, I haven't really been into davening lately. I haven't been able to find my flow in the last five or six years. That's a long time. That's not some small thing that needs to be corrected. That's not some glitch or some speed bump that really will get back on track. We need to get better at realizing without panicking and without catastrophizing, but through honesty and eyes wide open to realize when things are not going well and to give it the level of attention that it really needs. That's what I think this part of the story is coming to teach us. There is, by the way, in this story, one guy who gets it. There's one guy who knows really clearly what's happening, and he's been making an effort to counteract the downward trend that he's seeing, as we'll see in a moment. The way that this person is introduced is interesting. We just heard about Marta, that she stepped in some cow dung. She had never gotten her foot dirty ever, and she stepped in some cow dung and then died. That's one opinion. There's another opinion. Ika da amre guro grot the rav tzadok achla vidnisa umeta. She ate a fig of rav tzadok and became disgusted and died. Who is this Rav Tzadok? The Gemara tells us. The Rav Tzadok yativ arba'in shenin beta'anita delo li charevi rishalayim. Rav Tzadok was sitting for 40 years in fasting. He was fasting for 40 years 
in order that Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, not be destroyed. This is a man who saw the writing on the wall. He seems to have no institutional power. He seems to have no sway over the other rabbis like Rev Zechariah and Avkulas. But he is taking upon himself the personal commitment to do what he can as an individual in order to ensure, to the best of his ability, that Yerushalayim will not be destroyed. It is interesting to wonder about the role of individuals versus the role of the collective in terms of such a thing. Is it possible that the destruction of Yerushalayim could be prevented not by a communal realization, reading the writing on the wall and coming to some sort of conclusion and setting some sort of course of action whereby the Jewish people can rectify their ways as a community and stop hating on each other and discover ways to unify and therefore to counteract the negative forces that want to destroy Yerushalayim? Or maybe very righteous people could do very righteous things and try to counteract that. Well, this Rav Tzadok took the, took the latter course and fasted for 40 years. When he would eat something, he was so thin that when he would eat something, he could see it from the outside. When he would eat after he was fasting, I guess he was fasting days or a few days and then would eat afterwards. Obviously, he's not fasting 40 years in a row. Mighty lay grogorot. They would bring him a fig. Mites miahu. He would suck out the juice out of the fig. Vishade lehu, and he would throw out the rest of the fig. And that is what Marta may have eaten. This woman who's been living in the lap of luxury for so many years now comes across the fig of a man who's been fasting for forty years in an attempt to counteract the negative forces that are leading to the destruction of the temple. And she gets disgusted and dies. That's an interesting moment. It's interesting for her to encounter that. Is she disgusted by the food? Is she disgusted by the realization? We don't know. But we know that as she was dying, when her soul was leaving, when she was dying, she took all of her gold and silver. She threw it out in the marketplace. Amra, She said, Hi, Lamaimi Baili, what do I need this for? This gold and silver is not going to help me at all. And then the Gemara shows us that this, in fact, is another is a proof of another prophecy that was received. As it says in Yechezkel, they will throw their silver in the courtyards. So we have ignorance, we have painful awareness, we have paralysis. Sounds like a party. Sounds like the story we encounter so often. Sounds like the moment we're in right now. Let's see if we can move forward next time. Thank you for tuning in again.